The Office of Personnel Management doesn't hire people to work at federal agencies, but it has a lot of influence over how agencies hire people, and it provides crucial shared services to help agencies manage their workforces. This year, the Government Accountability Office added three high-priority recommendations for OPM to improve things. Here with details, the GAO's Director of Strategic Issues, Michelle Sager. And Michelle, good to have you back. And I guess this latest kind of summary of the recommendations for OPM relates to GAO's greater concern about strategic management of the workforce. Fair to say? Well, first and foremost, thank you so much for having me on the program. It's always a pleasure to be with you and to have a chance to talk about GAO's work. So these letters, as you know, from talking about many of them with other executives, they focus on the highest priority recommendations from GAO, where if action is taken, the agency leaders can really improve the federal government. And so that's the focus. And of course, OPM has uh, both its own specific issues that relate to OPM as a federal agency, but then also given the role that they play in helping other federal agencies addressing various human capital management issues, there's really great potential to improve government operations across the entire federal government. All right. With respect to OPM, you have added a couple of priority recommendations, though, just since, I guess, earlier this year, having to do with Title V special payment authorities and so forth. Tell us what's new here that you're asking Karen Ahuja to handle over at OPM. Definitely. So to put it all in context, OPM has right now about 68 open recommendations and our government-wide implementation rate that we issued in November 2021 is about 76% of open recommendations implemented within four years. For OPM, that implementation rate is about 56%. So it's a little bit lower than government-wide. However, it is important to point out that they did take action on two of the open recommendations that we had in our 2021 priority recommendation report. The two that you mentioned related to Title V special payment authorities and then also developing and implementing some role-based training requirements for staff who monitor the security of agencies' information systems. So they have made progress on those fronts, and that is always good to see. And then in the letter itself, it goes into detail about what the recommendations are and what OPM is planning in terms of its next steps. So for the open recommendations that we added, the three new ones this year focus on really two main areas. First is improving OPM's payroll data system. Two of the recommendations fall in that area. And then second is strengthening IT security in management. We elevate it one of our open recommendations to be a priority recommendation. And that comes just as there are settlement deals being worked out in court for people that might have been affected by the OPM data breach nearly 10 years ago now. That's correct. So that continues to be a really important area. And in fact, six of the open priority recommendations fall in the area of strengthening IT security and management. That's critically important given literally the millions of federal employees that are affected by the data in OPM systems. And with respect to the payroll data, does that have to do with OPM's ability to quickly determine annuity benefits for people that retire? Because that's been kind of a bugaboo for many years, how long it takes to get that final annuity worked out. So four of the open recommendations relate to payroll data, and they really focus on something called, that will sound familiar to people who live in that world, but may not be so familiar to people who do not, the EHRI, which is the data system that contains that payroll system. It's the Enterprise Human Resources Integration System. 
and that's where the data are housed. So we've had a number of recommendations over many years that would help decision making related to performance management, but also provide, you know, the tools and the guidance that agencies need to know what is happening in terms of staffing and making resource decisions that can support missions across the government. We're speaking with Michelle Sager, Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. And what about the calculation of annuities? Is that another priority area or is that one pretty much under control and it just takes as long as it takes? That is something that we have looked at historically, and that continues to be a focus of OPMs. In fact, this year, they had issued their most recent strategic plan, which includes a number of priorities, uh, and that, of course, includes the EHRI payroll data. And one of your recommendations that's been standing now for some time is addressing employee misconduct and improving performance management. That misconduct front is not just for OPM employees, but for how they guide agencies government-wide on handling misconduct, because that also in some way relates to employees' perception of the fairness and justice, if you will, in a workplace, which in turn affects rankings in the best places to work. OPM does definitely play a role in ensuring that agencies have the tools as well as the guidance that they need so they can address any misconduct and also maximize the productivity of their workforces. And so that definitely has a link to the kinds of things related to employee engagement that we see reflected in the best places to work rankings. So one of our priority recommendations is for OPM to improve the guidance to other federal agencies so that they can in turn effectively address employee misconduct and maximize the productivity of their workforce across the government. And earlier we said that OPM has made progress on special payment authorities for recruitment and retention of certain people that are highly needed and difficult to hire in the government. But there's another component to that, which is making hiring authorities more effective. And you hear this kind of year after year that agencies have, what is it, 110 different authorities within Title V that they can exercise but don't. What's your sense of what OPM can do there? So one of our priority recommendations continues to be about improving the design, the management, and the oversight of the federal classification system. And this particular open recommendation was made in 2014. So you're right, it's longstanding. And OPM does plan to work with federal agencies. What we have said is that they should work with stakeholders that, of course, include federal agencies. And one of the ways they do that is through both the Office of Management and Budget, but also through chief human capital officers at other agencies and the chief human capital officer council or the Chico council and look at prior studies and lessons learned across the government so that they can think about and then make recommendations to make the general schedule system more consistent with a modern effective classification system. And what kind of feedback on all of this are you getting from Ms. Ahuja? I mean, she came into OPM, I guess, about a year ago, and it's kind of like walking into a jungle that's filled with a million kinds of bugs flying around, and you've got a fly swatter. I mean, she's got a lot on the plate there. There are a lot of uh, issues to address. I mean, just looking at the categories in the priority recommendation letter, improving federal classifications, making hiring authorities more effective improving payroll data, addressing employee misconduct, and strengthening IT security and management. That's a lot to get your arms around. There has been some hiring at OPM most recently. They do have the new strategic plan. We have the new quarterly performance goals that we saw most recently from OMB. And then in the letter itself, there are some additional details about very specific actions 
that OPM plans to take, most of them within the calendar year and some of them by the end of the fiscal year. So we look forward to following up and seeing what progress they're making as they follow through on these planned actions. And the government-wide high-risk list is coming out in just a couple of months, right? Our high-risk list will be issued again next year at the beginning of the new Congress, and strategic human capital management is one of those high-risk areas. And of course, OPM plays a critical role in making sure that happens, both within OPM as well as across the government. Michelle Sager is Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. We'll post this interview plus a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to it? as a leader, and what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood, and I and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind that that what we say and do. especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that 
that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do, where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business.
Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. 